Broadcasting live from the 1980s musical Xanadu, this is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Seamus Connolly. I'm Garrett Strother. I'm Ricardo Salgado. What up? I'm here as well. How you doing, fellers? I'm good, Seamus. All I have to say is... Rosebud. I guess that's all we really can say, isn't it? Yeah, that's what we're doing today. It's official. We're a real movie podcast now. But before we get into this insane movie, frankly, let's get into the news we got today. First up, it's official. Craig Mazin's Last of Us series has been ordered to series at HBO. We are officially getting a The Last of Us series coming to HBO. Cool. Oh, man. It's a separate thing, right? Like, it's not about, like, Ellie or anything. They haven't said... It could get tricky to try to adapt it as perfectly as people are going to want it. I mean, I know people are going to whine and scream about it anyway, no matter what they get. But I think if they're scared of trying to recreate the emotionality of the actual game and the characters, they might opt for a Fear the Walking Dead style. Like, just it's about a gang of raiders or something. So I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure we'll be getting a lot more information soon. In other news, Dave Chappelle was able to convince Netflix to take down Chappelle's show, though it is still streaming on CBS All Access and HBO Max. So, do you guys hear about this? Uh, I think, Ricardo, you're the one that put it in the notes. Uh, his whole thing is, like, like anytime it is streaming somewhere, he's not being paid for it, because Viacom, I think, still technically owns it. When he was a young, up-and-coming comedian, and he signed the deal with Comedy Central to make Chappelle's show... He got a bad deal that means that he gets literally no royalties off of a show that he was writing, starring in, and executive producing, which is insane. Having a good working relationship with Netflix, he asked them to stop streaming it, and they agreed. Good for him. That's fantastic. As much as The Chappelle Show is such a classic piece of comedy, you know, it feels a little dirty every time you you know that he got so totally screwed. And if I'm not mistaken, that's one of the main reasons he left Hollywood in the first place and he took such a long hiatus before coming back and, you know, releasing his newer specials on Netflix. I'm glad to see that somebody that's hosting his content is is respecting those wishes. We'll all make sure to borrow Ricardo's DVDs. Yes. It's the only way you're going to be able to watch the show in the future. My specific DVD set. <laughs> Slumber Party at Ricardo's house. Up next, we predicted this slash mentioned it a couple weeks ago, but after the passing of Alex Trebek, Jeopardy is going to be rolling out a series of interim hosts, the first of which will be Ken Jennings, which I think was the no-brainer pick for everybody It won't surprise me if he becomes the permanent host after they cycle through however many interim hosts there are going to be. He is pretty much the most successful Jeopardy player ever. He is the person who has won the most money on game shows ever. Cool guy. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm glad he's taken over. Since I've been home for the holidays, I've I've been watching some of the last pre-recorded Jeopardy episodes, and the last one is going to be on Christmas Day, I believe? Is that what we said? That'll be interesting to see that transition. Ricardo, why don't you take us through our next one? I didn't actually read this article. I've just been looking at this link. It is wild. Yeah, we've got Da Boys, but they're a Da Board game. (laughs) (laughs) Looking at these pictures of this board game right now, this looks crazy. And is it based on the Amazon series or the comics? 
it looks to be leaning more towards the comics because all the game pieces and stuff have like pictures that look taken directly from the comics. It's called Da Boys, colon, This Is Going To Hurt. Oh, that's funny. That's it's a competitive two to five player board game in which the players take on the role of Butcher and Da Boys. Hey, we are two to five players, guys. Oh, she's true. Also, dibs on Frenchie. You son of a gun. He's <laughs> the best character. Here is some quick news that none of us have an opinion about. Stephen Capel Jr., the director of Creed 2 and a couple of indies that were supposed to be really good that I didn't see, <laughs> is directing the next Transformers film. The next what? Transformers oh, film. Oh, no. When did that... Cinema. Kino. Is it a continuation? Is it like a soft reboot like Bumblebee? It... They did not say... I kind of feel like if it was going to be another Bumblebee, they would say Bumblebee sequel in oh, the yeah, press maybe. release. They just say the next Transformers film. I kind of hope that that means they're giving him enough creative control to kind of decide what he wants to do, because that's how you know you make good movies. Good mm. movies out of franchises that are long dead. What if it's just another solo Transformers movie? What if that's just what they do from now on? It's just Jazz, the movie. Then the next logical step is to, unfortunately, build up to another Transformers team-up event. <laughs> They're turning the Transformers into the Avengers? And speaking of the Avengers, little baby boy Tom Holland, he is back again, and he's bringing Daisy Ridley in he, he's the all over Chaos the place. Walking trailer. I don't know, man. I'm not super sold on the concept. It looks nice, visually. Looks like they're trying to pair Tom Holland up with Daisy Ridley, but in my mind, Tom Holland is always 14, and that feels very weird to me. I agree. It does. Although, Daisy Ridley looks really young in this movie. I wonder how long ago they shot it. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. So it could be, you know, sitting in a can from 2015, and they're like, oh, these guys are big now. Put this out. <laughs> they're just waiting on it to, to age like wine until they put it out in 2021. It's coming out in the January of COVID, which means no one's going to see it. Like, it's the ultimate January. Yeah, jeez. This is just going to get lost to time, I think. Although it's got a really stellar cast, this trailer does not look good. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't ever imagine finding time to sit down and watch this movie, man. This movie's being directed by Doug Lyman, who did another high-concept, weird sci-fi movie that had a really bad trailer, but it turned out to be really good, Edge of Tomorrow. Oh, same guy. Edge of Tomorrow was great. So I do have a little bit of, like, maybe they could pull this off and the trailer just looks really bad because the Edge of Tomorrow promotional material was bad, bad. And that is a terrific movie. This one is written by Charlie Kaufman in part, which is interesting. All the parts seem to be there, but it just doesn't seem to be working in the promotional material. So, I don't know, if it comes to streaming, I'll be willing to check this out. Maybe, maybe. If you watch it and you tell me to watch it, then I'll watch it. Well, now uh, on to the real big news. Business <laughs> is a-boomin'. The Boss Baby 2 Family Business trailer. I won't lie, I was a little impressed with the direction that this trailer took. At what point... <laughs> The fact that you had 
the baby, the boss baby, as portrayed by Jack Donaghy, <laughs> and the older brother whose name I do not know and I do not know who plays him. The fact that they were grown up at the beginning of the trailer, I was like, whoa, this is a big time jump. This is crazy. Did you see the first one? <laughs> no, either not even a little one? bit. <laughs> Did you? Well, I know when it came out, Ricardo, you were losing your mind trying to get me to see it for some reason. So I assume that you loved it and have been keeping it a secret. I do not plan to see this movie. I did think that that part looked interesting. I guess I could say the same thing. You watched this trailer. What were your your favorite parts of this trailer? (laughs) Oh, my God. I don't know what to tell you, man. I saw this this trailer on TV earlier before I watched it on here, and it's just... Did you like Amy Sedaris? I guess I always love Amy Sedaris, but that's not the point, Garrett. Did you like when she said, okay, boomer? Was uh, that funny? Uh, <laughs> Are you going to like it when they make a Baby Yoda joke? Oh, Garrett, don't don't do it to me, man. Please. <laughs> don't do this. Coming March uh, 22nd. God, let's get out of here quickly. This trailer actually looks good. The last blockbuster documentary... It's been doing festivals for, I think, at least a year. Is that why I feel like I've heard of this before? The last blockbuster, the actual store in Oregon, I think is pretty famous. I think a lot of people know about that store. And this documentary, it's going to be available to stream and rent, like, to average people on December 15th. But I think it's been doing festivals for a while, and it has gotten a decent amount of critical acclaim. I mean, I think that's one of the coolest trailers i've seen in a while i mean obviously blockbuster was a huge part of my upbringing so this is i think gonna be huge considering how many people kind of they've, they've got that real heavy nostalgia for blockbuster for some reason i i can't quite put my finger on why movie store rentals were like the best drug ever as a kid but i think it's gonna be pretty great yeah i'm excited to check it out but now let's move on to some video game news I didn't know about this until I saw this in the Google Doc a couple hours ago, and now I'm very excited. IOI is developing a new James Bond video game. Maybe one of the most exciting parts about this, if I'm not mistaken, it's a completely original James Bond video game, right? Not based on any movie or existing Bond actor? It's called Project 007, or at least that's the working title right now. They, they said it's going to be like an origin story, which huh. I'm not crazy about, but I'm on board if the game's good. It is a wholly original Bond story. I mean, that sounds really fun to me. Obviously, they did work on Hitman. Like, that's their big mm. franchise, which I'm not a big Hitman fan. But if they brought a lot of the mechanics that come from Hitman into a next-gen franchise with the branding of something like James Bond that I can really get into and excited about, I think that sounds like a fantastic opportunity. Absolutely. I think I kind of hold the same sentiments. I've tried Hitman a couple times. It never really took super hard with me, but if it was just the James Bond version of that, I mean, I used to love playing those James Bond video games on the PS2. You know, Nightfire, you're from Russia with love, really getting into it, and I think... There really hasn't been a very great Bond video game in a long time, so I'm very looking forward to this. The last Bond video game to come out was the PS3 Xbox era. They haven't made a Bond video game in almost 10 years. Oh, actually, I think I might have played that. It was like a Daniel Craig 
one, but it was an original story and it wasn't that good. Yeah, that, I think that's the one. I'm really excited at the concept of a James Bond video game. And even though they say it's a wholly original story, you can't tell me they're not going to work in all kinds of Easter eggs, references, probably even a few villains, if we're lucky, from the James Bond Rolodex. I'm really anticipating this game. I cannot wait to see more about it, truly. If like maybe it's like DLC or something, you can like switch the skins, so it's like a bunch of different Bonds, like you can be Connery or Craig. Like they did in Goldeneye, like when you used to play Goldeneye and you could do everybody but Sean Connery. I, I hope that's you true. Do that. I'd like that. Maybe have it be like Spider-Man PS4. Yes, I like that. Different tuxedos with Pierce Brosnan's face. Maybe you can be Groovy Spy and be an Austin Powers <laughs> knockoff. Dude, where's our Austin Powers video game? What the hell? Your mojo meter is right underneath your health bar. Come on, it writes itself. You did it, Seamus. You solved video games. I am the king <laughs> of video game now. Wow, I can't believe that was it. Real quick, I want to give you guys a little PS5 check-in. My console is still running great. I have had no problems. It would get loud for like 20 seconds every hour or so, and I was wondering why that was. It turns out, if you have a disc in the disk drive that's just not being used, it still checks the disc and like runs it up a little bit every once in a while to make sure that the disc is still in there, that it's the right disc, every, you know, that kind of stuff. Huh. So if anybody's experiencing that problem with their PlayStation 5 disc edition, that's what's going on there. I have finished Uncharted 4 and moved on to Jedi Fallen Order. That's what I'm working on right now. What are your thoughts on Uncharted 4? What, what did you think of that wrap-up? Masterpiece. Amazing, I gotta right? say, my expectations were pretty high and they were met. So, I am very pleased. We'll do the whole series for the show whenever the new movie comes out. And so we'll talk in depth then. But if you guys haven't played the Uncharted series and you have access to a PlayStation... Just go for it, man. It's so good. I second that. Yeah, man, they're all straight bangers. Lost Legacy is on my Christmas list now. Oh, man. so That's one I never got around to, but I've heard that one's great as well. This is me looking on eBay for a PlayStation Vita so I can play Golden Abyss. Oh, I've always wanted to do that. I got my Vita sitting right next to me right now because I'm an insane person. Wait, Seamus, do you really have a Vita? Hell yeah, boy! Seamus, can I borrow your Vita? Ooh, <laughs> maybe, maybe, we'll see. Can I borrow your PS5? <laughs> maybe not the most equal trade in the world, but, uh... I'll tell you what, I'll buy you Golden Abyss if you lend me your Vita and let me play it. That's actually, that's actually a good deal. I'll have my people call your people. <laughs> my parents will call your parents for some reason, but, you know. They'll be like, hey, can Seamus sleep over? <laughs> and they'll be like, yeah, he's like 22. <laughs> John Carpenter, famed director and composer, is apparently a huge gamer. As if he couldn't get more likable and cool. Yeah, he's been tweeting all week about how much he loves Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which I'm just going to take his word for. Honestly, hearing his praise of that, and I have not played Assassin's Creed since Assassin's Creed Black Flag, that might be enough to get me to get this new one. Yeah, I jumped ship after Assassin's Creed 3, but I will say it did pique my interest to hear John Carpenter singing its praises. I'll pull up the Spotify app on my PlayStation and I'll put John Carpenter Shuffle on. Ooh, that's that's actually awesome. I love that idea. Alright, should we move on to our main segment? Rosebud. 
right off the bat, if you haven't seen this 80-year-old movie, we're just going to issue a blanket spoiler warning for Citizen Kane. Also, if you haven't seen Citizen Kane, you know everything that happens anyway, so... I assumed, but I want to ask, did you guys know what Rosebud was? Oh, 100%. Okay. Doesn't everybody? I figured as much, you know, you're men of the world, you're men of culture, but I just wanted to double check because, you know, when I was nine or whatever and I watched this movie for the first time, I did not know what Rosebud was. And I remember being like, oh! (laughs) You watched Citizen Kane when you were nine years old? This is new information and it honestly explains a lot. (laughs) I mean, honestly, I knew that I had had to have watched this movie at some point being a film person, but I don't know. It's one of those classics that just slipped by me every time. It, it's it's also a hard sell to like be with a group of friends and be like, hey, guys, we're having fun. Let's pop on Citizen Kane. Let's all have a, <laughs> a movie night, you know? Tell me, what were your thoughts next time we're all hanging out after COVID? Do you want to put on Citizen Kane? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. It definitely was impressive. I'm not, definitely not bagging on it, but it is... It's not really a movie you watch with other people. <laughs> you watch it in a dark room with your fingers pressed together in a pyramid, nodding. Yes. Yes, I understand. Cinema. All I could think the other night watching this movie is, how gorgeous do you think this looks on film? Oh, man. I would love to see this like actually projected from film. Man, is this movie gorgeous. Absolutely. I I haven't seen this movie all the way through until this morning, actually, but like it's used as every example in any class or talk or presentation about how film can look that amazing. And man, there's just like every other shot was like really blowing me away. That obviously is owed almost entirely to the vision of Greg Toland, who was the cinematographer on Citizen Kane. And you got to think about it, Orson Welles was directing and starring in this movie, and so Greg Tolan really would have been the man behind the camera for a lot of the duration of this, even though Welles was technically the director, because I don't think there's hardly a scene that Orson Welles isn't in other than, like, the framing devices with Thompson looking for Rosebud. We should probably touch real quick on the reason that we're reviewing this movie this week, Citizen Kane, is because we'll be reviewing Mank, the David Fincher film about the making of Citizen Kane, next week on the show. Like, Garrett, you were saying, just the look of everything is so incredible for it being an 80-year-old movie. I think I called it a 60-year-old movie earlier, and it's insane to me that this this movie's almost 100 years old, and it's one of the most impressive, I guess, movies that I've seen shot on actual film. Yeah, I mean, the fact that in 1941, the scene where Thompson goes to see Kane's second wife, they pedestal up the side of the club. They actually go through the neon yeah, sign. That and then through the skylight. They do a couple of those just, like, maneuvers that very much should not work with the like kind of equipment that we know they had in 1941, but man, does it make it all the more impressive. I couldn't do that with a GoPro. Yeah, exactly. Like, they're doing it with these 130-pound monstrosities. And just moving them, like, smooth as butter, just so seamless through shots that today we see that all the time because of how much editing we can use and the kind of equipment that is, like, specifically designed for one shot that is similar to anything in Citizen Kane. It's, it's crazy to think about. 
not to mention its revolutionary use of deep focus, which I still can't get over. Like, how some of these shots are not split diopter is insane to me. God, yeah, it looks, it looks so gorgeous, my god. Ricardo, what what, what were your, some of your favorite moments that stand out to you for watching this one? I'd never seen this movie before, so when we had to watch it for the show, I got out my phone on the bus and I started watching Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I I enjoyed it. It was good. Like you said, really impressive cinematography. They they talk over each other a lot. Was that intentional? Was that just a thing all movies did at the time? What's so revolutionary about Citizen Kane is a lot of what we think of as like what old movies do, in quotes, is because it's what Citizen Kane did and what movies trying to emulate the success of Citizen Kane did. It was really hard to capture sound at that time. So having characters talk over each other in that chaotic, natural way was pretty taboo because in the 40s, and Seamus can speak to this a little bit more because he's a film studies major, but cinema was still very much steeped in, especially Hollywood cinema, largely characters speaking one at a time in a, in a very stilted, larger-than-life way. Whereas Citizen Kane has this kind of gritty realism to it that while we may see it as glossy in old Hollywood because it's the most acclaimed film ever made, really was kind of down and dirty for the time and period. Yeah, I was going to speak on that too. There is this sense of realism in it when they're, when they're talking over each other and you know sometimes they stumble over their words or it almost sounds like they're stepping on the other person's lines, but they... They keep going in this way that is just like, it feels like two people speaking in a frantic way where one would talk over the other. And at the end, there's part of the credits is like, this film was predominantly made with actors that are either very green on like the theater scene or like lesser trained. And it's just, it goes to show that that is that influential realism tone to it that wouldn't really be, you know, experimented with more in the more mainstream until, like, decades later. Let's talk about the performances in this movie for a second, because Orson Welles obviously is giving one of the greatest performances of all time. It's, it's chilling in a lot of those parts. And he was so young making this movie. He was 25 years old making this movie. He was 25, did you say? 25 years old. Can you imagine wow. being... 25 years old and making this movie no i can't that's insane and everybody else is also really bringing it ruth warwick is really bringing it dorothy Cummingore is really bringing it dorothy Cummingore was one of my sure. favorites in here especially towards the end of the rough marriage that they have and she turns into such a strange character but so memorable and just going hard on her desperate lines about getting her husband to, you know, notice what is happening with her. I really just was blown away by her performance. Which I wife felt, are you talking about right now? This is the second wife. This gotcha, is right. Susie. I felt so bad for her from the moment she meets him. She is just trapped in the web of his life as this false idol for him to covet and squirrel away for his own happiness. I think that is, like, the most compelling example of the destructive capability of Kane's selfishness in this film. Through treating a woman he loves, or thinks he loves, 
the way that he thinks a marriage should be, he destroys her life. Even in, like, the stuff with the governor blackmailing him, he doesn't even flinch at the idea of putting her name and face into the papers as a huge scandal, because he doesn't care at all, really, because, you know, he makes it all go away by marrying her and giving her an opera career, but... yeah, An opera career that she did not want. Yeah, exactly, it's horrible. No, and she makes that clear from literally the first conversation they have. But I do want to shout out that great Italian opera coach guy. He was also killing it for sure. <laughs> out of a Marx Brothers Perfect. movie. That guy Love is. It. Man, I'm trying to think. There was actually a few really funny parts for a movie that I thought was going to be completely drama the whole time, you know? The tone is incredibly well balanced. Oh, yeah. I mean, not just the comedy and the drama, but your ability to both root for and despise Kane over the course of the film. Yeah, that's really true, because I I loved him just as a confident, fast-talking newspaper man, but he truly was a villain. And I know this that's kind of the point based on what Orson Welles wanted to say, but I really did feel for him a lot when I knew that I should not have. I do feel bad for Charlie Kane. I don't approve of him in any capacity, but... As the little boy who gets taken away from his parents to go be the sixth richest man in the world, that is a prison in itself, and I do pity him. I didn't get that. Did his, did his parents sell him to a I was bank? Gonna, I was going to ask happened? if that confused either of you two, because I did have to look up why this bank needed to adopt this boy legally, but I think I understood it by the time I, I got to the end of that part. Essentially, what I believe it is, and this has a very Dickensian flavor to it, which I think is intentional, is that it's the 1870s, so laws are weird. By which I mean there aren't really laws. (laughs) Yeah, laws with quotation marks around it. And they say in the opening synopsis of the rest of the film, in the newsreel that you watch at the beginning, that Kane's mother discovered on a once-thought worthless mine a huge fortune and i think what's happening there is that she's handing over the control of all of her assets to the bank to invest and essentially one of those assets that's being invested is charlie there is something with the father being not a good person i think she says something along the lines of like he's gonna be living a life away from you referring to the husband what that kid needs is a good thrashing, yeah. is what Mr. Kane says. Not a good, not a good and father so, figure there, for sure. It's also the 1870s, so it's a yeah. little, it is a little different than what is considered normal by today's standards, but, you know, not great. Yeah, um, sure. <laughs> and it's heartbreaking, because he has no idea what's going on, and Rosebud, the sled he's playing with right before he gets taken away, it's not only... A beacon of happiness for him, it seems to me. It's also a beacon of ignorance. That, like, the happier times were when he just didn't know what was going on. Jeez, yeah. It's also a weapon. Oh, yeah, he beats up that one guy with it. (laughs) See, I was wondering about that. That has to have some kind of significance, right? That the most powerful image and symbol in the film that really became the most powerful symbol in cinematic history is... Not only used as a tool of play, but as a defense mechanism. Yeah, kind of the 
old old life trying to fight against the change of becoming what Charlie Kane would inevitably turn into, I guess. He does become friends with Hitler at one point. Yeah, yeah that... <laughs> we're just going to gloss over that. <laughs> okay, I think it is interesting that they gloss over both world wars. Like, obviously, it's 1941, so World War II yes. was just beginning. But World War One. They're like, oh, World War One happened at the beginning, and then they do not talk about it. Yeah, that is weird. <laughs> and, and he also starts the th- Spanish-American War? Which is a direct dig at, we can talk about this now, I guess, William Randolph Hearst, who was a real newspaper man back in the same time period, that was very explicitly the inspiration for Kane. So this is very directly a attack on the character of William Randolph Hearst, who, through yellow journalism, did help incite the Spanish-American War. Like, that is absolutely true. Not to mention, like, even the image of Rosebud is often thought by scholars to be a direct dig at Hearst's love of flowers. Oh, damn, I had no idea about that part. Wells had it out for this guy, because he thought he was a tyrant and just a no-good man with way too much power. And he wanted to make Citizen Kane to expose the corruption of William Randolph Hearst. Did he have a cane at any point? When he's leaving yeah. his second wedding, and the photographer's like, I'm from the Inquirer! laugh in his face. I mean, that that's a good, good joke. That's See, that's a really good joke. <laughs> that was a good part. When... Susie invites him up to her apartment the night they meet, and he closes the door, and she goes, yeah, what are you doing? What the hell, man? That made me laugh, because it did look like it was going to cut, like, fade to black or whatever, and then they really come back on that. That's very fun. That's a very postmodern editing technique that this movie is smart enough to do way before any other movie is doing anything like that, where part of the comedic timing of that moment is the fact that in any other movie... They would close the door and be like, oh, you know, he's betting her. But in this movie, no, it, the punchline is that the door opens and that again. it's the landlady's rules, which is a little strange, but I guess it is of the time. <laughs> You've seen The Rocketeer, Yeah, oh, you're Seamus. right, you're right. Jenny Blake isn't allowed to have Cliff Secord right. up to her room. It's all coming back to me now. It's so good. There's a reason it is so acclaimed. I think it's because it's just so efficiently told the story is dealt out like one card at a time. It's very patient, it's very slow, but it's never boring. Yeah, I noticed myself kind of feeling like it was going on for a long time once we got towards the end of it, but it was never like a bad thing. I was always like more interested to see him continue his descent. This movie definitely feels longer than two hours, but I don't think that's exactly. a problem. Charlie smack talks his own wife. In, in oh yeah, I forgot about that part. Yeah. That's a hard scene. Yeah, to watch. that is rough. That's a hard scene to watch. Like no one, no one made him do that. He's trying to prove a point. <laughs> no, you know. And he's angry. He shouldn't be because he did it himself. It's so selfish and needlessly cruel. And that is like the point of no return. Yeah, selfish and needlessly cruel is a great way to sum up what Charlie Kane becomes. Final thoughts. Really good. Surprisingly funny. And just absolutely visually gorgeous. I I can't get over all the thick shadows over people's faces as they talk. It was just the best. Yeah, I really enjoyed this, uh, having never seen it before, but knowing all the like the cultural references, it was good to see where they came from. I was also really just engrossed in the story. And the acting was just on point from everybody. 
I'm, I'm glad I saw this. Awesome. Let's talk about it more in our <laughs> pop culture reference. Now it's time for our pop culture reference of the episode, which is more <laughs> Citizen Kane. I know you guys just came over from the main segment, but we felt like this is an important enough film and such a huge cultural touchstone that we needed to expand a little bit on its cultural ripples outside of the film itself. So that's what we're going to be talking about. You know, we do our funny little broadcasting location every week, and one of the ones that we actually talked about doing this week was the Citizen Kane of podcasts. And you hear that a lot. It's the Citizen Kane of X. Sometimes it's a joke, sometimes with sincerity. And I guess I'll bring it to the floor. What do you guys think when you hear the Citizen Kane of blank? I think if it's in earnest, it's like the highest level of compliment, but it is definitely used in a sarcastic way a lot, I feel like. Yeah, but that's just like a product of the time. Just like everyone's called it like the citizen came to something to the point where that. Yeah, really maybe that's it. It is so it's got very far reaching fame. So it really is like I'm pretty sure you could say Rosebud in any part of the world and you'd get a thousand references and everybody would really know what you were talking about. Yeah. So I guess being the citizen king of something is being the most definitive, well executed version of that art form. I think is that that's fair to say, you think? a great way to put it. I mean, this movie consistently tops the best film ever made lists. While I do think it is just tremendous, I don't think it's the best movie ever made, but I completely understand why at the same time. I totally agree with that. It's something that if you're a film person like us three in any capacity, and you haven't seen it, it's like a slap in the face to anybody who hears that information, and that is just because it truly is such a definitive form of what film is, and what film specifically evolved from, considering how much is taken and spread from this movie. Yeah, it's got huge influence. It is a marvel of writing, it is a marvel of camera work and lighting, and we marvel all the time at the fact that Spielberg made Jaws when he was 26. Orson Welles made Citizen Kane at 25. So what are the rest of us even doing? <laughs> it's, hard, you know? it's hard to compare what was originally intended to be just a super artisanal diss track that became the most prolific film of all time. I will say, I think Welles has put a lot more of himself into Kane than he would initially like to admit, especially when it comes to his egomania and his desire for control. Fun fact, Citizen Kane is the most referenced movie on The Simpsons. Is that true? Absolutely it is. There is a clip that you can go find on YouTube, I don't know if it's still up, I haven't watched it in years, that you can literally shot for shot remake Citizen Kane with shots that they That's have amazing. I want to go find that now. If you have not watched Citizen Kane, you should absolutely go check it out. It is well worth your time, if only so that you will better understand every single visual, cultural, literary reference that is being made in everything that you consume, really. It is so integrated into our culture that I don't think people even realize that they're referencing No, it, it is truly sometimes. inescapable in American pop culture. And if you're like me and you've spent 
so long without seeing it, going back and watching it now is like unlocking past references that are like held in my mind that I never understood but refused to look up. So it's it's definitely worth it. So yeah, should we move on to our pop quiz of the episode, boys? Pop, 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 quiz. The scores as they stand now, Ricardo's ahead 2-1, to one, Seamus, which means since Ricardo won last week, it is your turn to pick the category for this week's okay. pop quiz. Lay them on me. Either Transformers or James Bond video games. Hmm. The only thing I know about Transformers is the Shia LaBeouf movies. So, I think I'm going to go with James Bond video games. You know the rules. Whichever one of you produces the correct answer first gets the point. If neither of you can produce the correct answer, or you say it at the exact same time, we'll move on to the other category as our tiebreaker. The category is James Bond video games. What was the first video game console to have a James Bond release? The N64. Nope. The Atari? Can you be more specific, Ricardo? Atari 2600. Okay, Seamus got the point. Oh, yes. <laughs> Take that, Selgato. You wouldn't Suck have gotten there without me. Did you know the Atari 2600 was a thing? I just assumed they were all just called Atari. It should have been Transformers. We didn't get to talk about Orson <laughs> Welles' last role being a Transformers movie. Wait, that's absolutely true. Okay, throw that little tidbit in there, Ricardo. What is this? What the... Uh, what? Oh, you didn't know, Seamus? <laughs> no, I didn't. Orson Welles' last role on film was as, uh, I think it was Unicron in the original 1980s Transformers animated movie. That is the most insane thing I've ever heard. Holy crap. Well, the scores are tied up, boys. I'm coming for you next week, Salgado. You better get ready. I'm going to get the lead, finally. It's we two to two. don't know what these are building up to. We'll find out, but Ricardo, you get to pick next week's category. So, Yay. get ready for that. Now it's time for Mando Bros, where we break down the latest episode of The Mandalorian. For this episode, we are going to issue a spoiler warning literally immediately. We are going to talk about spoilers right out the gate because there's literally nothing we can talk about in this episode that isn't a spoiler. That is absolutely true. Including the title, Chapter 13, The Jedi. Ahsoka's here, guys. She's in live action. Time. Oh. She jumps right into that forest and starts slicing mofos up. Truly, I did not think they were going to be able to pull it off, but they did. It's dope. I'm so into it. She looks really good. Rosario Dawson takes over really well from Ashley Eckstein. I did not think that transition was going to go well, to be honest. Not that Rosario Dawson's not a great actor, but I didn't think they were going to be able to make that character feel the same. But I think she really does. She nails that attitude, but also feels like a older, more jaded version of the character. Yeah, it doesn't really skip a beat. I was pumped from start to finish on this one, and it's absolutely a majorly due in part to how good Rosario Dawson comes in as Ahsoka. And it's definitely, it takes a second to get used to, but only really a second, and then it, it felt, like, amazing. Just exactly what I've been waiting for since they've been teasing out Ahsoka for the whole season. Ricardo, how did this reveal feel to you being a person that doesn't know much about the cartoons. The name Ahsoka Tano, I know. I know she was 
Anakin's like apprenticed, and that is the end of my knowledge. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of the people listening to this also are not super familiar with the character because it is a pretty niche portion of the fan base, no matter how popular the shows are that actually watch the TV shows. So for those of you not in the know, Ahsoka Tano was first introduced for the Clone Wars movie and TV series, and then made her way onto Star Wars Rebels, which is kind of a sequel series to Star Wars The Clone Wars. She was Anakin Skywalker's Padawan during the Clone Wars, and actually left the Jedi Order at the end of the Clone Wars series. So it's kind of interesting that the episode refers to her as the Jedi. Yeah, and I think that might also be due to the Magistrate character who, I guess, maybe knows Ahsoka a little better than just, like, a dangerous threat. Kind of assuming, probably because of her lightsabers that aren't red. Well, I don't want to get into too much, Seamus, because I don't want to completely spoil Rebels for you, which you absolutely have to watch now. Yeah, me and Ricardo are both stuck into getting on those four seasons. But... Ahsoka in this episode reveals that she is looking for the magistrate who is just absolutely tyrannical over this town on, is it a moon of Corvus? I'm not even sure. It's some kind of forest planet moon thing, but she is working for a character who has never appeared in live action or even been mentioned in live action, Grand Admiral Thrawn, who is an expanded universe character that's actually made his way over to canon through Star Wars Rebels and a series of books written by the character's original creator, Timothy Zahn. So that was a pretty big shout-out as well, in addition to the fact that obviously Ahsoka is making her live-action debut. Yeah, there's a lot. My jaw dropped when she said Grand Admiral Thrawn, and I haven't even read those books, though I want to desperately. I got a bit into his stuff in Rebels, for sure, and I know that he is just, like, a mastermind character that I'm glad to see is maybe going to be actually masterminding in the canon a lot more. Well, there are a lot more implications that could be coming from the mention of Grand Admiral Thrawn and also the vague mention of maybe other Jedi out in the universe. There are some characters from Star Wars Rebels that are both tied to Thrawn and the Force in a way that they could potentially be showing up on the Mandalorian. So that could be very interesting down the line. Again, I don't want to get too specific for you guys, because Rebels is really, really worth your time. It's a very good series. Ooh, I can't wait to get right back on that. I, I made it a couple seasons in, but I, I don't know why I never finished. But we have what would have been the thing that we would never stop talking about if we didn't have the Ahsoka reveal, which is that Baby Yoda's got a name. Yeah, he's a name <laughs> now. No more the child. Grogu it is, then. The entire time, I couldn't stop thinking, Grogu, I've come to bargain. And I know that's not <laughs> that close to Dormammu, but I don't know. I thought they were going to go with a cuter name, I guess. But Does Grogu but, mean anything, or is it just another nonsense Star Wars I name? think it's just another Star Wars name, but I yeah. think it actually tracks pretty well. Because it sounds like something, you know, it's kind of Yoda-esque, but it, it's not just like Yaddish or something. <laughs> I like Yaddish. I think Grogu has a nice ring to it. Obviously, it'll take getting used to thinking of him as anything other than Baby Yoda. I yeah. don't know yeah. if we're going to call him Grogu or not. I think it depends on how frequently they say it. Because I think the reason we don't call Mando Din on this show is because nobody ever calls him Din. Yeah, it's always Mando. 
At least that's that what Carl true. Weathers calls him. Yeah, Carl Weathers, who knows his name is Din, calls him Mando. So, you know, it's... <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, he knows his actual name. I think Grogu might be here to stay in terms of name changes because they make it abundantly clear that Mando kind of needs to address him formally to get his force juices working. Yeah, it's fixing the listening problem that we've seen Grogu having for the last few episodes and really the entire series is that every time the Mandalorian says Grogu, he looks right at him. Oh, man, the puppetry in this episode alone is just so dynamite, it's crazy. The puppeteers and animatronics workers on this series need just all the awards, because they bring that character to life. No one else is doing it like them, and they very easily could have just done, like, a CGI baby. But not just with little baby Yoda. Even, like, other creatures, like, it's practical, it's all puppets and stuff and costumes, and that's really impressive. And the fact that they're able to use CGI to enhance the way it looks, and to better integrate it into the environment instead of making it stand out more. So impressive. I'm excited to see where we're going with Grogu. I'm a little disappointed that it doesn't seem like Ahsoka's here to stay. They seem to be setting her up for her own spin-off series, which there is a long-anticipated Rebels sequel series that Dave Filoni's been saying is in the works for years. So I think that's where they're taking this. Which Oh, like the all of the Thrawn stuff is going to be... I thought it was going to kind of be like uh, Vanth and, you know, the, our other friends on Navarro, where it's just like, we're going to have a couple adventures and then we're going to team up for the, you know, season finale threat or whatever. You don't know this because you haven't finished Rebels, but the way that Rebels ends is not a storyline that can be concluded in the background of The Mandalorian. Oh, damn, There okay. are huge cliffhangers at the end of the Rebels series, which, I mean, it's a very satisfying finale, but there's still a lot more story left to tell with some of those characters that mean that it's not going to be told in a satisfying way, just putting it in the background. Like, you can do the Boba Fett armor stuff easily with the Mandalorian. Honestly, I can't get enough of Dave Filoni and... His cowboy hat? His goddamn beautiful cowboy hat and just what he's doing with live-action Star Wars. So if he, if he was trying to make an Ahsoka series right now, then you he has another viewer. Not to mention, Bo-Katan, I think, is very easily going to have her continued story folded in with the Mandalorian because she and the Mandalorian have a common goal, they have a common mm. enemy, and I think... Since she's a Mandalorian, he's a Mandalorian, Baby Yoda's a Mandalorian, plus the idea of, like, the Darksaber being a weapon wielded by the first Mandalorian Jedi, and that Baby Yoda is theoretically in training to be a Mandalorian Jedi, that is all kind of clicking into place together as one cohesive story that I don't think the Rebels story could be so neatly folded in. Well, like I said, if they're trying to expand, expand as much as you want, because it's been all gold so far you know between rebels the new clone wars series i know they're doing that bad batch spinoff keep going give me it all i i'm i'm in also i want to give a quick shout out to my main man michael bean doing absolutely nothing in this episode but i love to see him was he the guard guy michael bean was the guard guy michael bean of terminator and aliens fame (laughs) Was that him? Is that why I that's, knew him? That's Kyle Reese. What the hell? Why didn't they give him anything? He gets killed. He stood there with a gun and got shot. 
That's what he did. I really thought he was going to be, like, maybe Ensign Vanto from the Thrawn books or something. Like, I thought it was going to pay off that he was somebody, but nope, he was just a guy there to get shot. Damn, that sucks. Because, I mean, I knew I knew him. I could not for the life of me figure out that that was him, but... He did a good job in the three scenes he was in. Yeah, granted he was in the best episode of The Mandalorian this season so far. I mean, I think I can safely say that for myself. I think this is the best episode for me in terms of what it means for the larger Star Wars universe and the one that made me feel the most like Star Wars chills. I think in terms of like what The Mandalorian has been so far and kind of what I'm interested in it being, I still think the first episode of this season... Cobb Vanth. Can't Cobb beat him. Vanth. You can't beat him. Really, <laughs> that's a tremendous episode. I think that's my other pick, too. This episode is still drawing, not just from Star Wars, but also, has Kurosawa's influence on Star Wars ever been so pronounced as in this episode? Oh man, that shot of Ahsoka standing on the rooftop behind Mando... It's Oh, it's oh literally God. Seven Samurai. Exactly. It's, I mean, no complaints here. This episode looks gorgeous and it has a very distinct visual style from the rest of the series, which I really appreciated. Everything's kind of smoggy and, like, green, and there's, like... Mm-hmm. Are they on a swamp planet? Is it a swamp? Is that what I'm No, it's a forest planet that's been ravaged. Like, there's smoke in the air from burning the planet to the ground. It's supposed to be, like, lush and nice. It's supposed to be, like, an Endor. But she's just strip-mined this planet. Putting it, people in that weird electric stockade. Oh, that just made my skin crawl. in front of her palace or whatever. Uh, neither of you happened to recognize those torture chambers, did you? No, what, what am I missing? Unless I am a big, dumb idiot, like usual, I am nearly positive that those are designed after the electric torture chambers from the Knights of the Old Republic video games. I have a huge blind spot in my Star Wars knowledge with Knights of the Old Republic, but I believe that to be the case. Yeah, also, I mean, one more quick Old Republic shout-out. They have two HK assassin droids, which are 100% from... Knights of the I Old did Republic. clock that. I'm sad neither of them said meatbag, but they didn't really talk at all anyway, so it's okay. This was definitely the most Easter eggs per minute in terms of just Star Wars stuff being thrown at the screen. You can see that Dave Filoni, who wrote and directed this episode, really knows his Star Wars lore. Though there is some Star Wars stuff being contested on social media right now, because Ahsoka says that she's only ever known one creature like Grogu. And that's Yoda, and I had the nice little Yoda's theme playing over that yes, scene, which I, like I oh boy, at six in the morning watching this <laughs> episode, did I get goosebumps. But people are upset about that because there's Yaddle on the Jedi Council in episode one, but she's not on the Jedi Council in episode two. I actually just looked up the mystery of Yaddle, and apparently there's a mysterious disappearance between episode one and two, so I'm not sure if, uh, Wait, I'm what? not sure if Ahsoka <laughs> ever met her. Do you not know about Yaddle, Ricardo? No, I didn't know there was a disappearance. Does Yaddle have, like, a backstory? Is there a mystery? There, there might it's be Star some Wars, ex- so every single background thing ever has a stupid backstory, Ricardo. It's Get gotta with be the program. extended universe. There's, like, something about, like, there is some mysterious, unspoken reason why she's not on the council in episode two, and I think it's because there's, like, a there's a side adventure or whatever. Baby Yoda's mom, right? Is that where this is going? Oh, my God. Could you imagine? If I they mean, bring Yaddle back in? 
Grogu was raised and trained at the Jedi Temple. Oh yeah, on, on Coruscant. Coruscant. I thought that was insanely interesting. That's big. It gives a lot of credence to the idea that he might actually be like blood related to Yoda. Or yeah, isn't he like matter. the only like sole survivor of that too? Like the only kid well, who didn't get murdered. Oh yeah, yeah. because Obi Wan says in Episode Three, none of the younglings survived. Except we know that like every single piece of Star Wars media has younglings that survived. <laughs> I'm talking Kanan Jarrus from Star Wars Rebels. Yeah. I'm talking Cal Kestis from Jedi Fallen Order. It, like there's plenty. Grogu. <laughs> Grogu. I'm really curious about which Jedi took Grogu from the temple, though. That'll be interesting to see. It was Yaddle. I, if it's Yaddle, I owe you both a Coke, because that will be the best <laughs> goddamn thing that Star Wars ever did. That would be really crazy. It just yeah, I... makes too much sense. <laughs> Great episode overall. The last thing I want to touch on real quick before we wrap things up for our Mando bros today is he's definitely going to use that Beskar spear to fight Moff Gideon with the Darksaber at the end of the season, right? If he doesn't, I'll be pissed off, because that spear is kick-ass. Like, that's Chekhov's gun. Truly, like, come on. He's got a weapon that can deflect a lightsaber. What if he, like, jerry-rigs it as a bayonet on his sick rifle? That would be the coolest thing. <laughs> Seamus, I got goosebumps <laughs> thinking about that. We'll see, man, we'll see. I am so ready. Cobb Vanth is gonna put back on the Boba Fett Ooh, armor yeah. for the end of the season. Oh, I just... These next, what, we have... This is episode five. I think so, so we have yeah. three episodes left. Oh, is it really going to be over that soon? I have no idea what's going to happen in these three episodes, and I'm so excited we about are... the future of the season. We're about to enter the stratosphere with this insane stuff. Let's move on to Save the Rec Center. Now it's time to Save the Rec Center, where we give you our weekly recommendations. Let's hear it, Seamus. I mentioned it before, and I couldn't get it out of my head throughout the entire Mandalorian episode. Garrett, as you've said, this is kind of a gap in your Star Wars knowledge, but if you have any computer, and if you have a Steam account, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic is the best RPG video game I've ever played in my entire life. It might seem like an exaggeration, and it might seem like a lot to go into, considering it's a part of the Star Wars Legends that takes place thousands and thousands of years before Episode One, the movie, but you don't even need to know anything about Star Wars to go in. It's just a truly epic story. Plenty of twists and turns. Absolutely fantastic. And as we see in The Mandalorian and in some... Actually, some of the new sequel trilogy movies, they are dropping in more Old Republic references, so it's only a matter of time until they refold it back into the canon, so. We're recording this on Black Friday, and through December 1st, you can buy it for three fifty on Steam. That is, that's mm. insane. It should be a million dollars a copy. It is so good. I definitely want to check this out, Seamus. I think it'll be a good time, especially considering the fact that they're going to do all this Old Republic stuff in the books coming up. Oh, yeah, exactly. The new book entire focus is on the Old Republic, so this is definitely the source material they're going to be pulling from. Mine isn't Star Wars related. I can't believe it. Why would you betray <laughs> us like this? It's a... Better be Citizen Kane related. <laughs> oh, it might be the, the exact opposite of Citizen Kane. My rec for this week is uh, just dropped on HBO Max. It's... Adventure Time Obsidian, part of the new Adventure Time Distant Land series, which is a, a series of four like 40-minute specials they've been coming out with. 
It's like a continuation of the series. I myself, I watched a few episodes of Adventure Time, but I never finished it. But I saw the trailer for this new one that's coming out called Obsidian. And just the trailer really hooked me. And HBO Max provides a a very helpful playlist. It's like, oh, do you want some context for this new one? Here are the exact episodes you need to watch to understand. Kind of blew me away. I didn't know what I was expecting when I watched it. But just the animation's really good. The writing, I thought, was just fantastic. And the music is just gorgeous. Like, it flips from, like, absolute banger to just heartbreakingly beautiful. I think to get into this one, you maybe, like, need just a little bit of the basics. But honestly, you could kind of watch this one as a standalone, like, episode. I mean, it's one of the more fun animated shows I've ever even seen in my whole life. So I was actually unaware that they were doing stuff on hbo so i have to i have to actually go and check that out right now hbo is really bringing it with the animation yeah they really are garrett what do you have this week you garrett well i'm gonna be pulling out a youtube channel my best friend alex actually turned me on to this channel a couple weeks ago and i have been really binging its content i've got annie hooked on it scott the waz he's a video game youtuber You guys will see how this hits a little close to home for me. He was a kid growing up in the Midwest, and all of his friends had, like, Playstations and Xboxes, and he only had his Wii, and that was his main exposure (laughs) to video games. Now, he runs an entire YouTube channel devoted to, like, every type of video game imaginable. He still has a soft spot for Nintendo, but he's, like, my age, very similar attitude towards video games that I have, especially being, like, a mostly casual gamer that only, after getting older, has become more interested in it. He's really, really funny, really high-quality videos that he puts out consistently, and pretty much any topic you can imagine he's covered. If you like video games in any capacity, or even if you're just starting out trying out video games, he's a great fit. He's really funny. I highly recommend him. You guys would think he's a hoot. You really would. Yeah, I love that attitude of just complete video game appreciation for having been, like, stuck in one specific console or video game generation before. It sounds like that would really open up to a lot of, like, really interesting takes if he's, like, going through everything now. So that sounds really cool. Yeah, I've heard Scott the Waz's name come up before just when I'm watching, like, other YouTube channels. Everything you said sounds really cool. I'll definitely try to check him out. Yeah, I really think you guys would enjoy him. I'm really glad my friend Alex showed me the show. Thanks, Alex. But yeah, I think that wraps us up for this week's episode of Pop Culture Reference. If you want to reach us, you can tweet us at PCR underscore podcast, find us on Instagram at that same handle, or send us a Gmail at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. Next week, we're going to be tackling Mank, the David Fincher film about the making of Citizen Kane. Plus, we're also going to drop a quick review of the live-action Mulan as promised, and of course, more Mando Bros to come. We'll see if next week's episode can live up to the hype that this week's episode created. Until then, we'll see ya. See you later, everybody.